You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Well, hey, good evening, everybody. How you guys doing tonight? Had like, uh, almost like a comic relief going on up here for a little bit, didn't we? Uh, as Brandon said, my name is Joe. If I haven't met you, one of the leaders here. If I haven't met you, I'd like to meet you, so make sure we connect or touch base before we get out of here this evening. We're going to turn our attention to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 37 through 44 this evening. And uh, as you're turning to Luke, chapter 11, I just want to say this. One of the things that we really hope is that you would encounter the presence of Jesus here tonight. Our hope is that you would encounter the presence of Christ. And and uh, w- one of the, our oldest sayings in our church is our mission statement, which is now tattooed on my arm, um, so, which is an interesting long story as well. And our, uh, our mission statement says this, that we want to be a church that is running a rescue mission within a yard of hell. And that statement came from a dude named C.T. Studd, who is a missionary. And the full statement that he said was this. He said that there are some people who want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. And the reason that we chose the latter half of that statement as the mission statement for our church is that we we want to be very intentional and clear that as a church, as a young church, we are like three years, about three and a half years old. We began planting in my wife and I, Christy, Uh, We began planting in our living room about three and a half years ago. There were just six of us then, and then you can look around the room and see who's all here now. But we wanted to be very clear from the start that as a young church, we want to be a church that is about the mission of God. We believe that when we read the scriptures from beginning to end, and when we encounter what God says to us throughout the scriptures, that what we're really getting is not just a collection of letters that are just God's love letters to us, though that's a great statement, it really is a grouping of writings from from over 40 different authors over 1,600 years that it took to to compile what we have here. And what it is, is is a picture of God's mission. It's a picture of God's love, it's a picture of God's kingdom, and it's a picture of a God who is on mission because of his great and deep love for you and I for his own glory. And so there was an old uh, Latin phrase that came about in during the times of the Reformation that said that uh, the sole purpose of man was to live for the glory of God and the salvation of mankind. That was a statement that we used as well. We, we basically boil it down to this statement by C.T. Studd, that we want to be a church that runs a rescue mission within a yard of hell, meaning that we want to be a church that grows disciples and raises disciples who are not afraid or ashamed of the message of the gospel, which is the power to save and change, to radically save and radically change, radically transform people's lives that we might then go outside of the walls of the buildings that we gather in and share that same message with other people so that they might come and join and be a part of the church, which we believe is the vehicle by which God continues to reach others who are within a yard of hell by the power of the gospel message for his glory. So I know that's a big mouthful that I just shared. I share that because we, we want you to understand, and we always want to hold in front of us the purposes and the mission and the vision by which God is planting this church, by which God is building this church that we affectionately call the well. 
And so our hope is that you would encounter the presence of Christ here today. And one of the major ways that we do that, as well as one of the major ways that we um, pursue this mission of seeking and saving that which was lost within a yard of hell is through the preaching of God's word. We take the preaching of God's word very seriously. And so I hope that you're there. Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 34. 37 through 44, excuse me. Let me read. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who, make, who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Let's pray before I begin to preach. Father, Father, we come before you this evening, gathered together in this space, this place, and at this time with your word open before us, and we admit humbly, Lord, that we need you to speak to us. We admit that our hearts throughout this week at times grow dull and weary, that our hearts become like parched, dry land, like desert spaces where we are desperately in need of a word from you, Lord. So we we come before you this evening with your word open, asking, Lord God, that you would examine our hearts. Lord, that you would send your spirit to examine the things that are happening deep within each and every one of our hearts in this place tonight, and that you would cause us to be in a place where we are willing and even more so desiring of your um, examination of us as followers of you. Lord, I believe and I know that, that the thing that we need the most is to have our attention and our wandering hearts turned to you and to the, the picture of the cross and to uh, the picture of Jesus on that cross and, and the power of, of the empty tomb. And so, Lord, as I preach this evening, I pray, Lord God, that you would be made famous and the message of the gospel, which finds its point and in its power in the face of Jesus, Lord, I pray that, that you would be made famous and that, that Jesus would do radical transformation in us in this place in this time. So Lord, I pray those things, I pray that you would just be present among us, that you would walk among us, that you would, so to speak, sit at the table with us and examine the roots of our hearts. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. So the question that we have before us tonight as we dive into this text is this, what is a hypocrite? It's the question that you might want to write down somewhere. The question is, what is a hypocrite? I've found over the years that it is far too easy for all of us to say, well, that person is a hypocrite, or those people are hypocrites. 
Uh, all the while, the reality is that there is a hypocrite deep within each and every one of our hearts that is fighting for control over our desires, our emotions, the activity of our lives, and the ways that we think. And so Jesus meets this Pharisee in this portion of Scripture, and Luke faithfully records the story that we might gain a picture of what hypocrisy looks like deep within our hearts. You see, a hypocrite is someone who is a fake, an imposter, a phony, or a bad imitation. A hypocrite is to Christianity what imitation milk is to a cold glass of 2% dairy alongside of my waffles on Saturday morning. A hypocrite is to Christianity what tofu is to a 20-ounce medium-rare ribeye steak on my grill. Bad imitations of the real thing. And we don't have to look very far in the world today to spot phonies and fakes and imitations. For instance, pornography is an imitation intimacy on the hook of sexual desires that creates dead men who are unable to connect authentically with their wives. Late night TV dramas are imitation storylines on the hook of our desires to have a more exciting and adventurous and fulfilling life instead of the mundane boredom of everyday life. Romance novels are an imitation relationship on the hook of loneliness for people who haven't been satisfied relationally. The world is full of fakes and phonies and imitations and imposters. And sadly, this is true of the church today as well. It's always been true of God's people. It's always been true of people, period, that we have a tendency to fake our way through lives, to pose ourselves as somebody that we are not. This is the reason we need to hear this portion of Scripture with, with open ears, willing hearts. We need this passage of Scripture today because in it what Jesus does is he, he confronts the, the hypocrite that is desperately fighting for control of our lives. What is a hypocrite biblically? As far as this story and as far as the scriptures are concerned, what might we say about what a hypocrite is from a biblical perspective so that we are not just trying to approach this topic of hypocrisy from our mere mortal minds only? What is it the hypocrites do? How do hypocrites behave? And how does the behavior of a hypocrite reveal the sickness of hypocrisy deep within every one of our hearts? As we examine the text, what we will see is we'll see four behaviors of a hypocrite that I hope we would invite the Holy Spirit to examine within each of us. One of my favorite commenters, J.C. Ryle. He said, we ought to watch our hearts with double watchfulness. We ought to give more time to meditation, self-examination, and reflection. It is a hurrying, bustling age. If we would keep from falling, we must 
take time for being frequently alone with God. And the reality of this text is that Jesus is confronting the hypocrite that is alive and well within each and every one of us. And as I've said, is fighting for control over our emotions, our desires, our feelings, the activity of our lives, and the thinking of our minds. And as we move through this passage, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would help us to examine our hearts that he would actually examine our hearts and illuminate or shed light upon or clarify those places deep within our desires and our thinking and our behaviors that are hypocritical. Areas in our lives that, that are, we are living in hypocrisy in terms of neglecting the important things, neglecting inner godliness, Neglecting God's acceptance or neglecting secret sin. These are the four categories that we will bounce through. Let me repeat them again for you. What we'll see is that in our hypocrisy, we will have a tendency to neglect the important things for the small things. We will make mountains out of molehills and therefore neglect what is most important in God's word. This This is an activity of a hypocrite. We will neglect inner godliness and we will trade the work of inner godliness and inner sanctification for mere externals alone. And number three, we at times will neglect God's acceptance and we will trade God's acceptance in for the acceptance of man. And number four, we'll take a look at what it looks like to be a hypocrite in terms of neglecting secret sin. The idea behind a secret is it's something that nobody else knows. And oftentimes throughout the scriptures we would see that hypocrites who were confronted by Jesus as he confronted them, what he was confronting oftentimes was their blindness. He was confronting the fact that they thought they were okay but in reality there was secret sin in their lives that they were hiding and even hiding so well in that they had ceased to understand or be convicted over those dirty things in their lives. Four behaviors of a hypocrite. So let's begin with number one. Number one, a hypocrite is someone who neglects the important things. Simply put, when we major in the minors and minor in the majors, we are hypocrites. In other words, when we find ourselves being astonished or upset because of little things that God's word doesn't speak clearly to, we are being hypocritical. When we neglect the big things that God's word clearly speaks to, we are being hypocritical. Can you imagine what it would be like to constantly be concerned with the little details instead of the big issues? you know that if you stand outside in the evening when there is a full moon and you hold out your thumb as small as it may be and you pull it back to your face and you look through one eye at some point your itty bitty little thumb that you are now focusing on can completely drown out the moon. Oftentimes what we do is we begin to become so focused on the little unimportant things that God's word does not speak clearly to that we totally miss the most important things God's word. 
This is what is happening with the Pharisee in our text when he invites Jesus over for dinner. The Pharisee in our text does what any of us would do if we knew that a famous person was in town and we had the ability to invite that person over to our home. He immediately goes to Jesus and he says, hey, will you have dinner with me? And at that point, Jesus is like, yeah, man, I like to eat food. I'll come eat dinner with you. And so they're sitting at the table according to the text. And in verse 38, Luke tells us that the Pharisee was astonished, underlined, circle, draw square boxes and arrows to that word in verse Verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished. He wasn't astonished at the fact that Jesus, the Savior of mankind, who was born of a Virgin Mary and sent by our Father in heaven to fulfill many prophecies to then continue the work of saving people by giving his life as a ransom on the cross. He was not astonished that this was the person sitting with him in the flesh. What he was astonished about as Luke tells us, is that he did not wash first before dinner. In other words, the Pharisee was neglecting the important things, even though Jesus was sitting right in front of him. How easy it is to miss the most important thing, which is Jesus, because of our personal preferences. You see, the Pharisees were an interesting group of religious elitists. They had certain ways that you should wash your hands, before dinner, and they had collected these writings of laws and rules in books. They had whole shelves full of these books, you might say. Some of the ways that they would wash their hands had to do with the way that the water ran down their hand or up their hand in regards to the filth of their arm. And so if you washed your hand with your hands down first and allowed the water to run away from your hands, and then after that, laid your hand flat and then washed your hand this way. And then once it, but if you ran your hand this way and then had to shake your hand off, it would get filth from the top of your arms down to your hands. And so they had some very precise ways of washing their hands before dinner so as not to defile themselves as they ate and therefore become unclean and have to ask forgiveness from God. The problem with this is that none of those rules were actually written verbatim in the Old Testament. Not a single one of them. The problem was that what they were asking was they were asking, okay, we know we have to wash our hands before dinner because God's word does say that. So cleanliness is next to godliness, moms and dads with children. And wives who just have husbands who like to stay dirty. Cleanliness is next to godliness. But what the Pharisees began to do is they began to get so caught up in the fine details of how they would wash their hands that they wanted to make sure they didn't break God's laws at all. And so they were very, very concerned with all the fine details of how they might hold their hands and how they might wash their hands. And what we're learning in this text is that Jesus, the most important person who ever lived, is now sitting at the table and this Pharisee is more concerned with the fact that Jesus didn't wash his hands according to his little preferential set of books on the wall. You ever hear Christians argue over certain types of worship music to the neglect of actually giving themselves to the wholehearted worship of God? You ever, ever observed that? Ever engaged in that? Guilty of that? I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty of that. I love a good rock beat. And at times I love a good rap beat. And then there are some who 
don't like that. And so I want to, I want to fight and win my case. I want you to bow down to the holier than thou, Joe, right? That's really what's happening inside of me as I want to fight this out and try to prove to you that my preference or taste in music is in fact godly and until you admit what I know to be true, then I will fight with you about it and what's happening then is we are not worshiping God through our arguments. I've posted many things on Facebook over the years that have been harmful and damaging to others and have had to remove them because of my inability to set my preferences aside and focus on the thing which is most important, which is Jesus himself. We all do this. Ever engage in an argument with someone over whether or not to drink alcohol to the neglect of being drunk or saturated in the presence of the Holy Spirit himself? We do this all the time. People, as people, we do this all the time. We take our own personal preferences and we put them in front of the very clear things that God has spoken to. And I think what's even maybe worse than that is we take things from God's word and we misconstrue them and make them mean something that they don't mean and then we use certain portions and texts of scripture that we cut and paste and make our own. We like take two or three words out of this verse and we put it over here and we take two or three words out of this verse and we put it here and we go, now string them together and that means X, therefore we should live Y. It's the cut and paste proof text message of studying scripture which is pretty well unheard of before our generation I mean the twisting of scriptures is one it's been around since Satan scriptures have been twisted forever the cut and paste relativistic I want to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that a little bit of this drop it in a blender shake it all up and now this is my Christianity and my preference This has happened in our American culture. It's happened all over the world. We all have a tendency to ostracize other people because they disagree with our deeply held personal preferences while puffing out our chests because we think we've got it all right and we've got our long list of do-good things that make us right before God. Personal preferences. Philip Ryken notes this in his commentary on this portion of scripture. He says the Pharisee had his own ideas about right and wrong. He had his own ideas about right and wrong, but they went well beyond the word of God, well beyond what the scriptures actually say, well beyond what God says in the Holy Bible, well beyond that was where the Pharisee lived, where the hypocrite lived and spent his time. Riken says this, says, as Christians, we need to learn to tell the difference between the law of God and our own personal preferences. When was the last time that you became very astonished or troubled by someone else's personal preferences for a certain kind of music, a certain kind of food, a certain position on a secondary doctrine, a certain lifestyle that isn't deemed sinful in God's word? In those moments, you and I are being hypocrites by neglecting the bigger things because of our focus on the smaller things. And in these moments, what happens is we miss the fact that Jesus is the biggest and most 
important thing. He is bigger than our little unimportant preferences. And the reality is that he's sitting in the room at the table with us. And my prayer is that we would become a people who are being healed and set free from our hypocritical and pharisaical tendencies, our self-imposed rules and regulations that completely pale in comparison to the bigger issues found in the message of the gospel. If there's one thing that's at stake in, in the church today, it's the message of the gospel has been lost the message of the gospel has become some cute little thing that we wear on a t-shirt or on a necklace that we hang in our car or these little bumper stickers that we put on there and thereby at that point we can totally separate ourselves from the community of Christ that the gospel is meant to pull together and we can say, mm, I'm a Christian. Far too many today in the church, in the Western world that are living selfish lives because we've either A, been hurt, B, like our own circles better than others, two, can't take our self-imposed preferences and lay them aside for the sake of community. What's happening is the gospel message, the picture of Christ is being sacrificed on the altar of our personal Preferences, and my hope and my prayer is that that is not who we would become as a church family. Number two, a hypocrite neglects inner godliness. A hypocrite is someone who neglects inner godliness. The reality is this, that when we are more concerned with the externals of life than the, than the interiors of our hearts, then what's happening is we are becoming hypocrites. When we find ourselves preoccupied with all of the external things and external behavioral issues in our lives while failing to invite God into the interiors of our heart's desires, we are being hypocritical. We are being hypocritical when we neglect the importance of inner godliness. Jesus confronts the Pharisee with this in verse 39. Look at verse 39. Jesus says, now you Pharisees, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the dish, of the cup and of the dish. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Now can you imagine spending your time, spending all of your resources to meticulously clean the outside of a really fine set of china so that you could serve a house full of guests, but all the while neglecting the rotting food that was inside the dishes. We would never, we would never conceive of doing such a thing. There was not one of us in this room that would think that it was somehow proper, right, godly, and okay to keep the outside all cleaned up on our china and then put them back in the cabinet with filthy, rotting food inside, only to then pull them out a week later to then serve our friends as they come over with something that is rotted inside. But the reality is that this is oftentimes the description of a quote-unquote so-called Christian's life. It's that on the outside, we look prim and proper and cleaned up, but on the inside, we're rotting away. Far too many, far too many self-professing Christians that look prim and proper during Sunday gatherings, while all the while their personal lives are full of broken relationships, abusive patterns, 
secret sins and manipulative games. There are some people who are so driven and controlled by their sinful desires to be in control or to be recognized by others that they play hurtful games by sending out very painful and accusatory messages to control the outcomes of decisions in groups of people, to make preachers preach softer messages. On the outside, everything appears to be okay. But behind the scenes, they are ruthlessly attempting to control, manipulate, and abuse people. Philip Ryken says this in regards to this. His note is that these people may have clean hands, but they have filthy, unclean hearts. Jesus' response in the midst of this as well was to call them fools. Verse 40. That Jesus isn't pulling punches when he speaks. He says, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? And what Jesus is saying through the power of the Spirit in this text as Luke writes this gospel so that we might be sure of the message of the gospel and of who Jesus is and his work at the cross. As Luke writes these things, what the Holy Spirit is saying is that we are like foolish children if we neglect growing in inner godliness because of our severe focus on external appearances. We must remember we must remember that God created us both inwardly and outwardly. Therefore, it is crucial for us to pursue inward godliness as well as external holiness. And oftentimes what happens in, in the church today, and I, and I have to admit this, this happens in the church because we're people. This happens in the church because of me, a preacher. This happens because I'm a sinful person just as much as any one of you. And that as I study the scriptures, I, I want to see the externals of my life pulled together and conform to what God's word says. And I want to live in a way that would bless others, love others, and love God and honor him. And sometimes I, just like you and just like this Pharisee in the text, neglect the importance of inner sanctification or growth and holiness. It's not one or the other, it's both and. We must have a focus upon God doing work inside of us so that the external portions of us would be holy. The reality is that God looks at us in Scripture and he says, Be holy as I am holy. And the problem for many of us is that we had daddies or mommies that yelled at us or beat us or hurt us. And we've had friends that have done the same. And when we hear God, the authoritative voice of God, and we hear him screaming that, yelling that with an angry voice, what the reality is when I see God speaking, he says, be holy as I am holy. This is a father looking at a son whom he loves because of our faith. Christ Jesus. And so for you, when God says to you, be holy as I am holy, know that this is both an inward and outward thing, that it is your Father in heaven who is saying it to you as a son or daughter that he is pleased with. 
And he's pleased with you because of what Jesus did. The other backwards way we get this is, oh, I got to get all the externals in order. I got to quit looking at pornography. I got to quit drinking so much. I got to quit smoking dope. I got to quit sleeping with my girlfriend or my boyfriend. I got to quit all these, I gotta, all these externals in order. That way the internal stuff will get in order. But the reality is oftentimes the externals of our life are a deep, deep reflection of what is happening in our lives and in our hearts. God wants to do both a work of holiness inside of us as well as on the outside of us. The problem is not in the external effort. The problem is focusing on external effort to the neglect of inner change. Jesus unpacks this a little bit more in verse 41. Look back at verse 41. He says, but give as alms those things that are within And behold, everything is clean for you. Give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. In other words, give your inner self to the Lord. So that by being cleansed continually on the inside, you will begin to leave clean on the outside as well. The externals of your life will become clean as the insides of your your heart and your mind are cleaned by the power of the Spirit. This is what it means to grow in holiness inwardly and outwardly. Let me ask you. Let me ask you this. How often do you spend in the presence of God daily? Get this. I didn't ask How often do you spend in the presence of God weekly, monthly? I ask daily. On a daily basis, how often do you find yourself caught up in the presence of God? How often do you find your heart and your mind so caught by the image of Christ and the message of the gospel which says that before the foundations of the world, God made a plan. His plan was to create all things and that some of those things being human, you and I would image or be a reflection of God himself to the rest of a watching world. But somewhere in the midst of all that everything went wrong, sin entered in and we became separated and God knew all this was gonna happen. It didn't catch him by surprise because his name is G-O-D. Didn't catch him by surprise at all. He had a plan in place. That plan was Jesus walking this earth for many years, and a cross, bloody, tortured, murdered for you and I, long before you and I, sitting right here in this space in time, had the opportunity to become his enemies. We've lived as his enemies when we were not trusting in him. Enemies are not part of the family. We become part of the family. We become children of God by the work of the cross and the gospel because of our faith in Christ as God calls us. This is the message of the gospel. When was the last time this message caught you? When was the last time that you were caught up on a daily basis in the presence of God who gave generously for you his enemies so that you and I could become his family? How often do you sit in complete silence listening the Spirit of God affirm you and convict you? How many times a day does this happen for you? How often do you spend every day? Every day on a daily basis, how often do you spend memorizing Scripture? 
It's not illegal for us. We live in a free country. We can do this. What's your daily devotional life look like? How often are you engaged in community gatherings of the church whereby you're building relationships and community friendships where others are pressing against you, challenging you, confronting you, loving you, encouraging you, meeting your needs? How often on a weekly basis or even daily basis are you engaged in this kind of activity? Because Christianity, divorced from community, is not Christianity. It's mere lip service. Listen, if the whole of your Christianity on the flip side is made up of large Sunday gatherings or midweek gospel community gatherings, and that's all of it, and to be honest with you, most of us are inconsistent at that at best, myself included. And if that's all that the weight of our Christianity leans on, and if our spirituality is hinged on those things like a door, and if we haven't found the space for daily rhythms, then honestly we are in grave and deadly danger of becoming more hypocritical because of our mere focus on the externals to the neglect of the internal things that God wants to do in our lives. Furthermore, if, if all of our existence in terms of godly inner growth is spent in a cocoon, all alone, in a corner, even for the most introverted of us in the room who would prefer that, and I fit that bill often, but even for the most introverted of us in the room, to live our lives in a cocoon, locked away from the outside world. We will never grow in the inner godliness that being in relational, gospel-centered community produces. But my prayer is that we would not be this kind of people. My prayer is that God would, would examine us and examine those places in our hearts and that he would grow us in this area. My prayer is that we would all grow into more godly people whose external lives are being transformed by the inner working of the Holy Spirit as he transforms the ways that we think, as he changes the desires of our hearts to desire things that we did not desire previously, as he cultivates a deep inner Christ-likeness within us that leads to outward holiness. That's my prayer for us as a church family. Number three, a hypocrite is, is someone who neglects God's acceptance. When we crave recognition from other people for our spiritual accomplishments, we are hypocrites. This is, this is an area that I struggle in deeply. It's hard for me to know when somebody is unhappy with something I've preached. It's hard for me to know when someone has been hurt because I came on too strong. It's hard for me to bear with the fact that there are days where my sin to grace levels seem to be running higher or lower off kilter, and there are days when I can't seem to hold myself together and behave in a right way, and to think that someone might know that about me and think wrongly of me can uh, sometimes drive me to living in ways that are even more unhealthy so that I might gain someone's affection, attention, or recognition to the neglect of resting in the acceptance that only God can give me through the message of the cross. 
Oftentimes we neglect God's acceptance. And we traded him for the recognition of man. And we cease to love God and serve others because of our hypocrisy. In this text, Lord, the Lord is teaching us that we should not neglect God's acceptance. We shouldn't trade God's acceptance for the approval or recognition or affirmation of people who have been created in the image of God but are not God. Jesus says it this way in verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees. Whenever Jesus says woe, it really kind of scares me. My mom used to own horses when I was a kid. And when my mom would say woe to the horse, it was because the horse was trying to run headlong off a cliff. Whoa, horse, whoa. So when Jesus says woe, I think he's trying to say to the Pharisee, whoa. You're running off a cliff. Don't run off this cliff. Actual meaning of the Greek word is alas. Doesn't carry the same meaning to me. Woe to you Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rule and every herb. And neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus essentially says this. He says, hey, hey, whoa. What's wrong with you guys? You're so careful to tithe down to the last penny, which is good, by the way. It doesn't say stop doing that. In your obsession over getting your tithe just perfectly right, you've neglected acting justly or rightly and lovingly towards others. Jesus is saying, hey, quit neglecting one for the other, but instead excel at both. Get good at both of these. You have to ask, why is it so difficult for us to continue doing what is right and good? And I think the answer is this. I think, I think the answer is that it's hard work. It would be easier to count every penny down to the last penny to get the tithe just right so that as a Pharisee I could stand on the other side of the church room and throw my pennies, one, two, three, into the, the, the vase that stood near the back and so that it clanked into the vase and made a ton of noise and got everybody's attention. That would be easier than loving others and acting rightly towards others the way that God in Christ has done for me. I think the issue for us is that we, just like the Pharisees, in our text, we oftentimes lean towards doing good things that will gain public attention, recognition, and affirmation from others. Jesus says it this way, Verse 43, look, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Jesus says that the reason that we struggle between doing what's right and loving at the same time is that we love the attention we get from other people. We struggle to do what's right because the motives and the desires of our hearts are often sinfully pharisaical and hypocritical. We are like actors Imitating a fake story on a stage of life, craving the acceptance and recognition of others to the neglect of God's acceptance of us in Christ Jesus. We are like imposters pretending to be recipients of the Father's love when all along we are unable to extend the Father's love because we have not truly and authentically received it in the first place. So, because we have not gotten that, we choose to be fake. 
and go after things which are much easier than the things which are harder? What would it look like for us to be people who not only give generously to the ministry of the gospel, but also love people wholeheartedly? What would it take for the hypocrite deep within each of us to be rooted out and murdered so that we can live in the acceptance of the gospel while wholeheartedly giving ourselves to the ministry of the gospel financially and relationally? We make an observation here. My observation would be this, if we could truly confess and repent of our tendencies to work for the recognition of other people, to soothe our selfish posturing, if we could repent of that. In other words, if we really understood that acceptance and affirmation from other imperfect people who are broken just like we are does absolutely nothing, it does nothing Let me say it again. The affirmation of people who are imperfect and broken does nothing for you and I in the picture of eternity. Does nothing. And it pales in comparison with the recognition and affirmation and acceptance that we gain in Christ. Why would we trade temporary affirmation from people for eternal affirmation and acceptance from God our Father? Why? Because we are sinful and we need Jesus and he's sitting at the table talking to us and he wants us to understand that he is the most important thing. It's the only thing that matters. My prayer is that the Lord, through the gospel, would put to death the hypocrite that is living in each of us that seeks to control our desires for self-gratification, self-affirmation, self-expression, and self-sufficiency. It's the root of pride that is below all of this. It's the root of pride that thinks that I can get what only God can give me. Number four. Number four, a hypocrite is a person that neglects secret sin. Listen. Listen, when we believe that we are spiritually alive, but in reality are hiding in our sin, then we are guilty of being hypocrites. When we are feeding our souls on forbidden things in secret places, we are in fact giving in to hypocrisy. We are then in fact neglecting secret sin which creates the stench of death in our lives. The paycheck for hiding in our sin is that we become deceived into believing that we are okay when in reality we are sick and dying and more than that, we are dead. Wages of sin is death. Like unmarked graves that stink of rotting death. This is essentially what Jesus is saying in verse 44 as we land the plane on this message of hypocrisy. He says, woe to you. He says, woe a second time. Woe, don't run off that cliff. Woe to you for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. And for a Pharisee to hear this would have been really shocking. Because to walk on a grave according to Leviticus or Numbers, I'm sorry, according to Numbers 19, 16, 
To walk on a grave would cause you to become dirty and you'd have to go through all sorts of cleansing ceremonies. And the reality of that law was that it was meant to point us to the fact that we could never do enough cleansing to cleanse ourselves completely. We really needed Jesus to be the one that would cleanse us. But for a Pharisee who was trying to keep every tit for tat piece of the law to cleanse himself and to keep himself right before everyone else and to keep himself right before God, to walk on a grave would be terrifying because it would get dirty. In fact, they were so paranoid about this that they would actually take like bleach and whitewash the graves so that you could tell that they were a gravesite so that you wouldn't then walk on them. You could avoid the filth and the dirtiness. I mean, let that sink in for each of us. What are some of the places that you and I call filthy that actually aren't filthy according to God's word that we try to avoid? This is one of those places that when Jesus looks at the man sitting at the table, he's saying, you are like a rotting grave. You don't even know it. Your life is so full of secret sin that you have become dead and you don't even know it. You've, you are so dead and in your grave and rotting of sinful, stinking death that you have missed the fact that the living, breathing Savior and God of the world, the Messiah, is sitting right here with you and you have failed to be caught up in a rapture of love with me. What Jesus is saying is that if we continue in our hypocritical and pharisaical ways, we will be people who are actually hiding in our sin or hiding the secrets of our sin while believing that we are actually okay. Be like a cancer patient refusing to admit that they have cancer and need help as their body wastes away in the stench of death in front of everyone. Is this you today? Are you secretly wasting away on the inside because you haven't been cleansed by the inner working of the Spirit through the message of the gospel? which then leads sinners to believe and trust in the work of Christ at the cross? Are you caught up in the externals of life to the detriment of God doing real, inner, transformative work within your heart and soul? Does your life smell like death? Are you attempting to clean up your external life while inside you are a mess? If so, if this is you, whether you are Christian or not, most likely you are a Pharisee and a hypocrite. The great news, great news, is that Jesus is sitting at the table with us. It's as though his presence is thick in this room. It's as though he is sitting right next to you through not only the message and the words of a preacher, but through the word of God because he was the word who became flesh. It's as though Jesus is right here with you and he's calling you and I to trust him and drop our pharisaical and hypocritical game-playing tendencies to prop up ourselves as better than we are and walk away from all of our posing and our faking and our imitating and our pretending and just come to him and just come to him and ask him to save us and change us once again. It's a picture of continuing to walk out the message of salvation in each of our lives. The scriptures say that we, if we are Christian, we would walk out salvation on a daily basis. We would work this out 
by the way that we walk and live. This is the key in this passage. Jesus is sitting here with you and with I right now. Are you too astonished or troubled deep down inside to trust him? Or will you trust in him so that he can continue or even enter for the first time? Either enter for the first time or continue entering into your life so that he can evict the pharisaical hypocrite from deep within your heart. I want to invite our music team to come as we wrap up our time together. And as our music team comes and as we conclude our time in the scriptures, I want to remind us of the quote that I opened us up with this evening as we began this study from J.C. Ryle, and he said this. He said, we ought to watch our hearts with double watchfulness. We ought to give more time to meditation and self-examination and reflection. It is a hurrying, bustling age. And if we would keep from falling, we must take time for being frequently alone with God. How are you doing with this? How are you doing at being alone with Jesus? Are you more preoccupied with your personal preferences to the neglect of God's clear commands? Are you more concerned with the externals to neglect of the inward transformation and holiness that God wants to do in your life? Are you more concerned with gaining human recognition to the neglect of resting in God's acceptance? Are you hiding in your secret sins through deflection, deception, defensiveness? Or are you openly trusting in the work of the cross to save you, change you, and breathe new life in you? Are you spiritually alive? Or are you spiritually dead? Are you a hypocrite in need of Jesus today? Because if you say yes to that, then join the family. Because whether we know it or not right now, every one of us sitting in this room is a hypocrite in need of Jesus. As you contemplate these things that I've said, I want to invite you to the communion table. We have found in our church that the, the best response to the preaching of God's word, along with worshiping God through music, is the partaking and engaging of the communion table together because in it is a picture of remembering the gospel. It's, it's a way of us practicing and rehearsing the gospel together. And if that becomes mundane and boring for you, then you're bored with the gospel. The best way we could respond to a message preached from God's word is to remember once again the body that was broken for us and the blood that was poured out for us so that we who were his enemies could become family. We who were hypocritical Pharisees long after he made this plan could then come to him and be healed. For some of you that are here that don't believe in Christ, you've not trusted in Christ to save you, you're checking it out, you're skeptical, you don't know if this is for you, please hear me. Please hear me and know there were portions of this message that were for you. And there were portions of this message that were really for those of us that call ourselves Christians. But if you're here and you don't believe, you've never trusted, we do not want to put pressure on you to engage in a communion meal that is meaningless and worthless to you. You may in these moments have said, God, you spoke to me, I, I believe. 
Help me in my unbelief. I believe. I'm trusting in you to save me and change me and take this sinful, wretched person and make me into a clean son or daughter of God. If, that, if you're there, that's fine. Then we invite you. You don't have to be a member. You don't have to sign a card. You don't have to pray a funky sinner's prayer that most evangelicals love to dive into. You don't have to do those things. Only to have believed deep down within. Only to have heard the voice of God say, come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, and burdened. Come to me and I'll take those things from you as I endure the cross the tomb and as I show myself powerful over that. Only need to have believed that. If you don't, don't feel the pressure to come. Don't worry if you're the only one still sitting there when we take communion. We want you here. We love you. I'd love to talk to you afterwards if you'd like. But for those of you who would like to come and engage in communion, now will be that time after I close in prayer. There will be a few who will be here near the front that will serve you. They will, you will take a piece of bread, you'll dip it in the juice and the person serving you will remind you they will say these things to you. They will say, this is Christ's body and blood broken and poured out for you. And as you consume this meal, as we consume this meal together, we experience the Holy Spirit uniting us together to shed blood the broken body of Jesus. This is you and you engage in this together with us. Welcome to a family of recovering Pharisees and hypocrites who are clinging to the cross of Christ together. Let me pray. Stand with me. Father, we thank you for this portion of scripture. We thank you for our time together this evening. We pray, Lord God, as we get engaged in communion and as our music team leads us, Lord, that your spirit would examine our hearts and that you would lead us to do the same, that as we engage in this meal, that you would convict us encourage us, challenge us once again with a picture of the gospel. I pray that, Lord Jesus, and I thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for letting me preach. I love you guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.